Hello, friends. Welcome once again to the Perfect Bound Podcast. This is a podcast all about anything and everything comics, books, and comics related. Brought to you by the Panel Jumper and Comic Dungeon. My name is Ben, and we have a special episode for you today. Now, if you're a regular listener of the Perfect Bound Podcast, you know that it's normally just the four of us, Chris, Cole, Nicole, and myself, sitting around a table inside Comics Dungeon and talking comics. But we have occasionally interviewed people on the show, and so this episode contains excerpts from some of our favorite interviews during our first couple of years. We began with a clip from episode 15 when we welcomed Melissa Slaughter and Rachel Terrell from the Fangirl Gathering. We spent a lot of time talking about Doctor Who, and Rachel starts us off explaining why Christopher Eccleston only did one season as the Doctor. I don't know. I don't know the logistics of it. I know he felt that he was treated really bad on set, and it was long work days. And basically that what he thought he signed on for was not within the contract hmm. of what he was doing. So that's why he kind of left. He's he the also, Alan Moore of Doctor Who's. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, kind of. He also only signed on for one season because oh. in England, I mean, in England you can do anything. We're huge Anglophiles as shown by <laughs> what we choose to review. So uh, in England you can do anything. You can do theater and film and TV at the same time. In the U.S. you can only really do... You're only like a film actor or a TV actor, and crossing over is really difficult. In England, you can move around with the exception of Doctor Who. Once you are the Doctor, you are only the Doctor. David Tennant has done some spectacular things since Doctor Who. It'll be on his tombstone that he's the most beloved Doctor, which was yeah. an award given him. Mm-hmm. And it's also really hard to be cast. It's kind of like if you play a big superhero, it's hard for anyone to see you as anything else. Like, or like the Minor Harry Potter way. kids, yeah. you know, them branching out, right. doing some like serious work, but everyone's like, Yeah, I heard, I heard um, Rose Tyler, the name of the actress escapes Billy me. Billy Piper. Billy Piper. I heard she, she left Doctor Who because she was getting tired of whales. Mm. <laughs> That's understandable. Whales? whales? They film it in Wales. Yes, oh, I thought you meant whales, and my first thought was no, because the star whale was with <laughs> Amy. <laughs> she just didn't like Cardiff. We went to Cardiff. We went to Cardiff. We, we went to Cardiff, and I remember crossing the border and turning to Rachel and being like, did I just pay 13 pounds and sit on a bus for three hours so I could see Doctor Who stuff? She's like, yeah, yeah yep. you did, <laughs> and I'm here with you. I don't know why. Everybody says, you know, the, your first Doctor is your favorite Doctor. We mentioned that Eccleston is your first Doctor. Um, a lot of my contemporaries, their first Doctor was Tom Baker, mm-hmm. who's the fourth Doctor. Eccleston was my first one, and then when they transition over uh, and they get to the new guy, I'm always like, I'm not going to like this guy. And then two episodes later, it's like, oh, okay. And then they kill him. It's like, oh, I'm not going to like this next guy. Yeah. It so takes yeah. about an episode and a half to readjust. It doesn't take too much time. Uh, mm. not okay. Oh, so no. quick story time. <laughs> do you do you not like uh, Matt Smith? Story time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ten is my doctor, but that's because I watched David Tennant the year previous in um, a Casanova film that Russell T Davies, who was the showrunner at the time, had written. So I loved David Tennant. I watched the show for David Tennant. Didn't care about anything else. Um, and I did go back and watch nine. And I was like, I really like Doctor Who, but I love David Tennant. Going from 10 to 11, mm. I not only remember exactly where I was in my dorm when it aired that he was not going to do it anymore. <laughs> I remember like watching Matt Smith when we were, we did a study abroad and I watched an episode of some TV show he was in and I was like, I don't like him. I don't like him at all. It took <laughs> me 10 out of 13 episodes to stop expecting David Tennant to walk off the TARDIS. I had a real <laughs> rough time. That being said, um, when Matt Smith transitioned to Capaldi, I was on board within the first two seconds. Capaldi's <laughs> amazing. Too. What are the, pardon the pun, 
what are the tenets to the appeal of particular doctors for one over the other? See, I, 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 I grew up watching um, Tom Baker, and then there was uh, Peter Davidson, and then yes. I lost interest after that. Um, That's and the for show. Good Colin and Baker, I, Sylvester McCoy, Paul McGann. Thank but you, Colin Baker. Um, but with the the re, the, I mean, for me. The show grew up with Eccleston and then Tennant, and then I've. Um, it's not always worked for me, but I mean, it was just a whole fresh new world that we're dealing with. Part of it is the advancement of technology, you know, because you can make, you can do more cool things, and you know, we would. Uh, you couldn't help but but laugh and scoff at the effects of the BBC effects from back in the day. But but, but what is the appeal of an individual doctor to you? What do you look for? What what reaches? What touches you? So each doctor has their own distinct personality. Um, has anyone gone back and watched the first doctor at all? Yeah, I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so extremely racist. Now. Yeah, he's <laughs> very similar to what the current twelve doctor is, where he's very old or curmudgeon-y. He's a grandfather who doesn't want to deal with anything that you're going to complain and whine about. And then the second doctor was a lot more jovial, and the the third doctor looked like a magician but was incredibly intelligent. Everyone just has their own distinct personality. Nine, for example, is what's kind of referred to as the survivor guilt doctor because he's gone through the time war. If you've watched the 50th anniversary, you know what I'm talking about. As I sit here wearing my 50th anniversary (laughs) t-shirt. He's So he's got a darker vibe. Tenet is then this kind of new person who has his own crazy bubbly personality and then you go to a even weirder Matt Peter Smith. Peter Pan-ish type doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. he's very Peter Pan. The so it's I... whoever attract, what personality attracts you the most I think mm-hmm. is what makes them so likable and then because they have their own catchphrases, their TARDISes and their logos all change with the doctors, it just makes it that much more endearing to each era. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing, one thing I did like about Matt Smith though was that his was kind of the self-hate doctor for me. Like, there's the survivor, and then David Tennant got a little bit happier with it. But when Matt Smith kind of came around, he was a little bit more hateful of, like, what he did to everyone's lives. And that's mm. stuck with me. Next, we visit episode 39 with our guests Georgia Ball, author of such titles as Strawberry Shortcake, Littlest Pet Shop, Transformers in Disguise, and many others, and Heather Neufer, who has written for titles such as Teen Titans Go, Vampire Diaries, and Fraggle Rock. They both have written for My Little Pony and joined us in store in November of 2015 to talk about writing for licensed properties and speaking at brony conventions. Take a listen. Are you seeing a shift in trend in the narrative of children's comics? I bring this up because uh, nowadays when I watch like shows on Cartoon Network, the sensibilities of, say, um, Steven Universe and the, the what's the show with the raccoon and the blue jay? Uh, oh, regular, regular show, show. regular show. Yeah. You know, there's, um, you know, when I was a kid, there were very few comics or cartoons that were geared toward children. That, well, let's face it, they were just saccharine, icky, sweet. Um, the cartoons and comics now seem to have this <coughs> double edge to them. Like more, perhaps more and more adults are watching or reading along with their children, and those creators are being mindful of the content that, so that it has these multi-layers. Are you, do you work with those sensibilities when you're, when you're telling your stories? Yeah, the old stuff was just trying to sell toys. Yeah, <laughs> sure. yeah. yeah. That's one thing we definitely, you definitely learn in licensed comics is that it, 
a lot of it is still about selling toys. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you if, you know, what, how many differences there are with, you know, dealing with licensed properties versus, um, you know, anything else. Memories. Oh, like with the Transformers, yeah, like yeah, there's yeah, anatomy yeah. and like with Monster High, there's a certain vernacular. Mm -hmm. Vernacular? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You have to do a lot of research. Yeah. Like I spend hours and hours watching cartoon shows. And yeah, like for Transformers, like I, I know. Guys. Well, when it's work, right? You know, anything well, there is that a point where you're like, fun. I can't, I can't watch. The time <laughs> is hard to come up with when you're, you've got things to do and yeah. multiple things that you're on, and you also have to sit there and watch like 20 hours of a show. Um, the My Little Pony crew, the people that read those books, can be very specific about continuity. They get <laughs> yes, set. and yes. you definitely hear about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you better have seen every episode. Yes. In watching all that content, do you feel inspired, or do you sometimes feel that you are being smothered under the weight of the <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah. See, I think about that a lot. I'm like, See, well, if yeah. I was to write that character, I would have to, wow, I don't even want to contemplate going yeah, down that. Yeah, when I got, I, I have a very specific moment when uh, I was so excited when I first started watching My Little Pony, and I was uh -huh. a big, a big, a big early adopter. <laughs> and uh, I was like, "This needs to be a comic, guys. This really needs to be a comic." Uh -huh. And so um, I found out they were doing one, and then I was like, really pumped to get on it. Like, I got to get on this comic. And then I got on it, and then I was like, "What did I just do? <laughs> like, what did I just do? Like, I have to suddenly be, you know, an expert in this thing that I." I like, um, and it's and it's definitely a pressure. I know as we've sort of progressed through My Little Pony, G George and I get invited to a lot of brony conventions, sure. um, and uh, do quite a few of them. And you really do have to know your stuff. You have to have, um, you definitely have to have a vernacular, uh, and be be ready. Um, so it does get very overwhelming sometimes to feel like you have to know. You suddenly get quizzed a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you got fanboys. I want to get uh, your perspective from an insider, because from an outsider like me, who, and we were talking about this the other day, and mm -hmm. I can't remember if it was on or off the air. It's probably off the air. Um, who knows any more realities? <laughs> I traverse the deep web every once in a while. No, get off the deep web. It's the I have, worst place to be. I have yes. a day job with a computer and a lot of downtime. And the 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 brony phenomenon, it does does not have a very good vibe out there in terms when of when you Google search it. What people, <laughs> what people think of guys who like My Little Pony. Yeah. Now uh, you've gone to conventions and you've spoken to to uh, My Little Pony enthusiasts, yes. members of the community, members of the community. What's I mean? What's what's your impression of of guys who of the guys who are really enthusiastic, really who are members of the community, who have their favorite yeah. pony, who perhaps might dress up as My Little Pony? What's what's what? How does that all feel to you? Um, I guess for me, overall, uh, my experience with Bronies has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, really, you know, like like any. I'd say like any panel you do at a show, there's usually somebody who says something inappropriate. And that I think that goes, you know, that goes at Comic-Con when you're doing a regular panel. Sure. It goes when you're at a brony convention and you're doing a brony convention. Um, but overall, just their sort of um, compassion towards other bronies and their, there's a lot of charity work. They do a tremendous mm. amount of really? charity work. Mm. Uh, yeah, mm. I think it was over uh, uh, every... Uh, Brony Convention usually has a charity auction, mm -hmm. and they're they're raising like thirty or forty thousand dollars every 
every auction. Which, wow. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, so impressive. Um, and they also treat us really super well, <laughs> which, which is awesome coming from Colin. Like, like, I have a handler? What is this? Like, <laughs> so they, so they're, they're super nice. They make you feel really special. Um, and they're, uh, for the most part, are doing really great work. Would you characterize that community as any different from as being different from other types of fan or cosplay communities? Like people who really like Star Trek. Is there, <laughs> right. is there a sense of irony? or is it? I, I, I mean, everyone is different, no. and every community is going to be different. But They're really enthusiastic. Like, uh-huh. They don't yeah. feel ironically about their property. They really love it. I find them to be very loyal mm-hmm. and very supportive. Mm-hmm. Some of them really struggle to communicate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest. And sometimes that it seems so brave, yeah. like how hard they're trying. Like Some of them really have trouble like real troubles mm-hmm. and they they surpassing them in order to be able to communicate with the people that they admire and it's really nice yeah. so yeah. actually taking part in this fan quest is actually like a, a healthy av- avenue and outlet for a lot of these people yeah, yeah for okay. a lot of them very Got much yeah. yeah i mean we've had people in the store young young guys who have come in when the when my little ponies first started mm-hmm. and they would be mumbling kind of under their breath mlp mm-hmm. as a, and i was just like i don't i'm not familiar with mlp <laughs> and then it like took me a little while and then i was like oh my little pony and i'm like so enthusiastic <laughs> that somebody's like yes you know somebody out of like the kids you know wants to read this book yeah. and that's really great and then I'm like, yeah, it's over here. And like, he's just not that enthusiastic, yeah. <laughs> you know? So we've mm-hmm. seen all different types, young boys and girls and everyone. And finally today from episode 87, back in October of 2016, we welcomed Larry Reed from Fantagraphics to talk about the Robert Crumb exhibit that was showing at the Fantagraphics bookstore. We were also joined in store by Seattle actor David Natali and David's Aunt Mimi, who joined us by phone. Aunt Mimi and her sister Alex knew Crumb back in the day in Cleveland, and it turns out Crumb had a thing for Alex and gave her a whole bunch of original drawings that Alex has held on to all these years, drawings which make up a majority of the Crumb exhibit that was at Fantagraphics. It's a fascinating interview, and if you haven't heard the whole thing, I encourage you to go back and listen to it all, as Larry has been in the alternative comic scene for quite some time and just occasionally drops names like Harvey Picard, Matt Groening, and Charles Burns. Here's an excerpt from that interview. Hey, uh, Mimi, it's it's David calling. Yes. Hi, we, uh, we're doing this podcast thing, and they just asked me about, um, like, what our, or my connection is to Chrome, and I, so I figured I should just ask you uh, if you could, like, tell us about uh, how you knew Chrome back in Cleveland in the in the 60s. That's where we're from, is Cleveland originally, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think, you know, uh, Chrome actually worked at American Greetings. When was it, Aunt Mimi? Early 60s. Early 60s, yeah. He did their highbrow cards. Oh, okay. Highbrow cards. Greedy yeah. cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, that was the uh, um, the trade name for uh, the kind of uh, cards he was doing. Hmm. Like greeting cards and that sort of stuff. Yeah, but these were a little bit weird, and so uh, <laughs> uh, they referred to them as their highbrow line. Aha. And so what is uh, what is Aunt Mimi's connection to, to Robert Crumb? Huh? What is your connection to Robert Crumb? Oh, well, we met him in Cleveland and uh, got friendly with him. And then I introduced him to uh, my younger sister, and uh, 
she was a little Rubenesque, which he really liked in women in those days. In fact, he would leave candy in the houses of uh, women he wanted to fatten up. And uh, so they would meet across the street, and he'd draw pictures for him. In fact, those are the uh, pictures in the show in Seattle right now. Ah, cool. So these were all um, illustrations that Crumb did for... For the the two of you, or or just for your sister? No, for my younger sister. For your younger sister, okay. Um, and uh, I have yet to see the exibit. Um, I'm sorry, Mimi. This is Cole Hornaday. I'm sitting at the the, the far end of the table. Hello. Hi there. <laughs> um, it's like you're right here. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm curious of, of of what the 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 artwork looks like, and and uh, and and uh, how how much. Uh, how many images are there? Uh, there's lots of sketchbooks. So what did you wind up with? There are about two dozen. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, actually, yeah. uh, we, do have, we do have one here in front of us. Um, uh, David, you want to describe oh, that yeah, image it's, to it's the It's the picture. The it's the multicolored frog. He's kind of like cross-checked in green. and He's yellow with green and red stripes, sort of cr- crisscrosses. And he's saying yibble, yibble and jumping up <laughs> in the air. A lot of this stuff. All magic marker. I know. Yeah, exactly. All magic marker. <laughs> Most of the sketches are kind of from. I, I don't know if our guests are familiar with that period of the Yum Yum book. He kind of drew these little animals uh-huh. and little sort of uh, froggies and and various things. There's a lot of those sort of birds and animals sort of things. It's a lot a lot different from some of the later work, like like the Genesis, which was just mm-hmm. at the uh, Seattle Art right, Museum right. and all that. But this is real early stuff. Gotcha. So, Mimi, do you have um, particular memories of, of interacting with him, and did you have any type of insight? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, in fact, when we, um, there was a whole group of us went to San Francisco, um, sort of together, but not together. And uh, one of the things was I was um, helping him staple the first uh, Zap Comics in his uh, apartment in uh, San Francisco. And I said to him, well, he wanted to say, what can he pay us for this? And I said, well, Robert, you don't have to pay us anything. But just when you're rich and famous, don't forget who we were. (laughs) And the the result of that was the picture in Zap 13 with me handing him a joint. Oh, is that right? You're famous for introducing him to drugs. You know? yes. I mean, the, the art world would not be the same without you. <laughs> and here, here, here's that Mimi uh, uh, passing him a joint. You're showing the picture now. Yeah. From Zap 13. Thank you very much, by the way. <laughs> You've enriched all of our lives. This is Larry, I'm glad by the way. I hear that. Yeah. <clears throat> And that's that's interesting because I just got done reading the weirdo story, where he is being interviewed by the obnoxious uh, stoner journalist from uh, High Times Magazine, where he says, you know, I I don't smoke marijuana anymore. I don't really even know why I'm here. Um, I've just got this uh, a lot of these all these back taxes I need to pay, <laughs> and so I just need to get this interview over with so you can pay me. Well, I think after a while he got some bad acid, and it didn't work well for him. Yeah, that would do it. <laughs> <laughs> did he did he stop doing drugs at I a certain so, point yeah. in his life? Okay, and do you know what I, motivated that? 
the, the bad acid. acid. <laughs> That'll, That'll do it. Do it. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> Did his art change uh, significantly after the bad acid? No, I don't think so. Okay. Did you follow his he career? Sorry, more and more refined, refined in his uh, artwork. Did you Practice s- will do that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you stay connected to him? Did you follow his career after that 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 summer in, in Off San Francisco? Off and on, uh-huh. I did hear from him a couple years ago, and then uh, when the show uh, started happening, I contacted him, and he responded. So, can we talk a little bit about the show and 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 what's going on with that, and how that came about? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, we had had these. I mean, I was familiar with these comics back in the 80s. I, I think that's a good reason why I'm as warped as I am today. <laughs> looking at the, but, uh, you know, these comics were in a, in, a, in a cardboard box for years, and finally mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, we should put them in a plastic box or something. And, mm-hmm. and then just they've been under a, a bed in Arizona for years and just were finally, like, wanted to take them out and, you know, sell some of them, downsize sure. a little bit, and also just get them out there because in... Uh, and uh, my wife suggested calling Fanta Graphics, and right. I got in touch with Larry, and, and yeah. we really just went through them together and found a, a treasure trove of not only old comics, but and not only these big sketches, but some little uh, little drawings of like Fritz the Cat on the oh napkin, my. Oh and, my. and all these weird little little knickknacks that. So Larry, what was that yeah. like digging through that? Um, oh, that was really the the holy grail. Oh, yeah. Kind of. yeah, it was a religious experience. <laughs> I, in fact, you'll recall I put them all back, and then I said I'm going to have to come back with white gloves. Yeah. I actually came back yeah. with white linen gloves to touch. Uh, they were, you know, Robert Crumb um, just last month at the mm-hmm. Seattle Art Museum. He showed with uh, Rembrandt, uh, Hogarth, Goya, Picasso, Durer, and R. Crumb. Right. I mean, he's a uh, in discovering a significant body of work by an artist of his caliber is momentous. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be able to exhibit it for the first time, and I, I have exhibited Crumb's work on mm-hmm. several occasions, but uh, to introduce this work to the to the public has been uh, really kind of a career, you know, a bucket list sort of thing. Um, it's, uh, it's delightful. I really want to thank Mimi for allowing... Uh, Allowing us uh, to see this work. Crumb for doing them in the first place. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's wonderful work. You can see it's about 1965 to 1967. So you're wow. seeing that signature style sort of develop. Um, he, uh, a lot of this work, uh, you know, sort of foreshadows some of the things he's doing later. Mm-hmm. And there's just delightful little pictures of Fritz the Cat and early Mr. Snoyd. And some of mm-hmm. his, uh, some of his well-known characters are just being developed and a lot of them are just sweet he clearly was very fond of alex um he claims in some correspondence to have only had to had a, a platonic relationship mm-hmm. and that seems plausible because if crumb crumb wouldn't is not bashful about revealing everything so uh, <laughs> um they're just uh he was a pretty so, awkward gawky guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still, I will say, you know, he's still a, a pretty awkward guy. But uh, again, thank you for allowing us to exhibit this work. I think it's uh, it's an important body of work, and uh, from a really significant time in his artistic development, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, clearly uh, a budding genius. His work, as Mimi said, got far more refined mm-hmm. over the years, as most this will happen with most artists. But uh, 
I, I think it's always wonderful to see an artist in those formative stages where, you know, he's uh, experimenting and, you know, clearly having fun. And, you know, I understand a lot of these were drawn behind a church with uh, across the street from Mimi's yeah. place, yeah. right? Is that right, Mimi? Or, or, I mean, yeah, the church across the street from my folks' house. Uh, they would meet back there, and uh, he would draw pictures for her. Larry, do you feel that that's one of the things that kind of distinguishes underground storytelling from a lot of other kinds? Is that uh, very personal and and you know kind of shadowy disclosure of of someone's internal workings? I mean, we've got you know like Hate and Eight Ball and those kinds of books that that are that are highly personal. But but Crumb was really one of the first artist storytellers to to open those kind of closet doors, yeah. <laughs> peep under the bed kind of thing. Yeah, he was a master in it, and he was mm-hmm. he was really one of the, the, the innovators, along with Justin Green and, you know, several other uh, cartoonists of that era did have uh, autobiographical elements, but Crumbs were certainly the most revealing, uh, the most transgressive, I think, you know, during the... That, that that hippie era, they were challenging a lot of mm-hmm. social mores, and mm-hmm. uh, and Crumb was challenging all of them, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, in a very sort of, uh, you know, he, he there was nothing timid about his work, and uh, I I think he set he set the bar pretty high for artists that came along later, but uh, I, I I see now younger. Younger people reading those comics and they're appappalled by some of the imagery and some of the <laughs> yeah, imagery really is, yeah. is definitely yeah. appalling but I, uh, it's a bit uh, shocking yeah I have I've, I've always had uh, kind of a lot of I don't know I can't speak for anybody else at the table but but I've always had a lot of mixed feelings about the the work that he does I've always respected his his uh, illustrative style and the risk-taking that he he makes in the storytelling I have a question for Mimi hi this is Nicole can you hi. hear me hi um, I'm wondering why you kept all of the the pictures and things, and if Alex kept a lot of stuff as well, especially since she wasn't interested in him, what might have compelled you guys to hold on to the material? She wasn't interested in him in a sexual manner, but she was very interested in him in his, as a friend. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So it was still fond, a fondness to hold on to that but material. She kept them. I didn't keep them. Gotcha. They were hers. Well, um, Mimi, before we let you go, I really want to say thanks for joining us here yeah, at the yeah. table. And, uh, thanks for letting me. Yeah, and so um, is there any lasting story, anything you can tell us uh, about Crumb that might give us a better idea of the man himself? Other than the, uh, the thing of his leaving candy around in the houses of women he wanted to fatten up? <laughs> That's a good one. That's a pretty wow. good one right there. All right. Yeah. We'll take it. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks, Thank Mimi. Thank you. You too. Yeah. Thanks, Mimi. We'll talk again soon. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it for today. If you want to hear the complete interviews, links to those shows will be in the show notes. And we'll be back next week for a brand new, fresh episode of the Perfect Bound Podcast. Thanks for listening.